Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, October 2nd, 2020. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. We woke up today to the news that President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump have tested positive for COVID-19. Our plan today had been to discuss the economic issues raised during Tuesday night's presidential debate. We'll go ahead with that discussion while wishing the president and the first lady a rapid and complete recovery. Glenn, I think most people who watched the debate know that economics was not at the center of the discussion, but there were some economic issues raised. Today we can discuss those issues. First though, let me remind students and instructors listening that if you'd like us to address a particular question or issue, you can contact us via email at hubbardobrieneconomics at gmail.com, H-U-B-B-A-R-D-O-B-R-I-E-N, economics at gmail.com. We'd be happy to hear from you. Glenn, one issue that came up in the debate is the question of the pace of reopening businesses and schools. It's an issue that affects students wondering when they will be able to return to campus full time or when their family's business might reopen or when they or a parent or a sibling might be able to return to work. Are there ways that economists can contribute to the debate over the pace of reopening? It's a great question, Tony, and I I think the answer to that is yes. I mean, obviously, the pandemic is a public health crisis and We have to pay attention to public health and medical advice at a local level, at the state level, and at the national level. But economists can talk about trade-offs. That's what we do. That's what we talk about in principles of economics. We know, for example, that the longer businesses stay closed, remember we're talking about many uh, service sector businesses that are either closed or constrained, the more of a chance they'll fail. Uh, and that workers will lose their jobs. And we know that it's hard to simply restart businesses and that spells of unemployment can have longer term consequences. We know for schools, for example, that uh, schools are important in the education of children and that online education has not been the complete substitute that it was uh, billed as for a number of reasons, whether it's at primary and secondary levels or in higher ed where you and I operate. Having said all of that, the question is how fast? And that's a public health decision. And the goal ought to be to look at vulnerable sectors of the population back to economists and trade-offs and try to keep them safe while opening the economy as rapidly as possible for others. Uh, At the same time, we need to keep doing workarounds in technology and other things to keep the pace of business, of employment, of education going. So yes, I think we have a lot to contribute. What do you think? I think that you're right. I mean, clearly it is a very difficult question. Uh, Neither of us being epidemiologists, and of course even the epidemiologists have struggled to understand the effects of the virus. As you mentioned, there are important trade-offs. And one of the things that is unusual about the recession that we're in is that the businesses that are being badly hurt, such as restaurants, uh, other service businesses, movie theaters, and so on, 
are usually are the businesses that usually do okay even in a recession that we're used to thinking of recessions as involving housing and construction and then maybe they spill over into manufacturing as people cut back on buying automobiles and furniture and appliances and so on this time we're seeing something different manufacturing is doing pretty well but it's really the service sector that's been badly hurt and we don't have a lot of experience about what the effects are of closures uh, in the service sector. As you mentioned, we don't know whether or not some of these smaller businesses will be able to bounce back because many restaurants and other small businesses don't have the access to funds that larger firms do. And it can be difficult for them to do much more than draw down their own personal savings, or even sometimes run up their credit cards to try and survive. And of course, uh, it is, there are limits to how long they're going to be able to do that. So it's obviously a very complex situation that, because we haven't been through it before, it's difficult to quantify what some of the effects are. Maybe we can turn to another issue raised during the debate, and that has to do with the economics of healthcare. As you know, in in 2010, when Congress passed the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which is usually referred to as Obamacare, because this was, of course, back in the Obama administration, the act supporters often refer to the three-legged stool that made up the key provisions of the act. So these these were the three legs that were discussed back then as Congress passed the law. The first was subsidizing insurance on the basis of income for people who bought health insurance on the exchanges the act set up. So we have these health insurance exchanges where private health insurance companies uh, offer policies and people can buy those policies and the federal government will subsidize the premiums based on people's incomes. So the people buying these policies were primarily ones who weren't offered insurance through their employers or, and whose income was too high for them to qualify for Medicaid, the traditional means of helping poor people to have um, health insurance, and who weren't old enough to qualify for Medicare. So that was the first stool, the subsidizing insurance people bought on these exchanges. The second was to require that people with pre-existing conditions be covered. That is, if, for example, you had a history of cancer, then you're going to be able to buy insurance at the same rates as if you didn't have that history. And then the third, which is the, the issue that came up during the debates, was requiring everyone to have health insurance. So this last requirement was known as the individual mandate. What it meant was if you didn't obtain health insurance in some form, you were going to be subject to a fine. As President Trump noted during the debate, as part of the tax reform Congress passed in 2017, the individual mandate was repealed, so it no longer is in force. Some economists and policy makers in 2017 predicted that without the individual mandate, the Obamacare system of insurance exchanges would collapse and many people would lose their insurance coverage. So two questions to consider. One was, what was the purpose of the individual mandate? Why was it included in the original Obamacare legislation? 
And two, why haven't we seen the decline in insurance coverage that many people predicted when the mandate was repealed? Well, those are good questions, Tony, and they cut right to, again, principles of economics kind of trade-offs. First, a little bit of history in the politics of this. Uh, I worked in the Treasury Department in the early 1990s, so I'm, I'm old enough to remember that it was actually a conservative idea to think about an individual mandate. Uh, and the reason was, at the time, uh, to solve the free rider problem, that if we have a health system and I choose to not buy insurance but become sick in the hope that you'll simply take care of me, that's a classic example of a free rider problem. And I think a number of writers, conservative and progressive at the time, had written that an individual mandate was a solution to the problem. Fast forward to today and the debate over the individual mandate and the debate that happened when the Affordable Care Act uh, was passed. The individual mandate was to serve the same kind of function, to stop the free rider problem but it's worth asking as economists, why do people not want to buy insurance? Well, one example is that it may have been perceived as too costly. So for example, suppose I'm a young, single, healthy individual, and I'm offered only plans that have a lot of services I might not particularly want at very high prices, I might not buy them. And so one of the things economists have talked about is more competition, perhaps across state lines in healthcare markets to, to lower those prices. A second, as you point out in your question, is about subsidies. Uh, is there a way to subsidize uh, so that the cost that I just mentioned becomes lower? That was of course built into the Affordable Care Act. And by the way, is built into most healthcare reforms, whether you call it the Affordable Care Act or an alternative conservative or an alternative progressive idea, they all center on some form of subsidy for low-income individuals through a voucher, through a tax credit, through the exchanges and so on. I think one reason that we have not seen the collapse uh, in the market despite the enforcement of or existence of an individual mandate is those generous subsidies. And at the end of the day, like many economic problems, it's about the cost, it's about the money, and policies tried to deal with that. Should we be talking more about this? Yes. Could we do it in a better way? Probably. But understanding the trade-offs, I think that's what we as economists have to offer. What do you think? Yeah, I think you raised some good points. Uh, this obviously is another complex issue. It is interesting as we talk about in the textbook in our chapter on healthcare, we talk about in general with insurance, there's uh, a, an adverse selection problem that can exist, which of course means that the people who most want insurance are the people who insurance companies would least like to insure, that if you live in a, uh, an area that is subject to fires, say, then Fire insurance companies are reluctant to insure you. If you're a really bad driver and you're getting into a lot of accidents, then automobile insurance companies are reluctant to insure you because the basis of insurance is really risk pooling, which means that we take a bunch of people who might, for random reasons, suffer from some problem, whether it's their house catches fire or they have an accident, or in this case, um, they develop cancer or some other disease. 
uh, pull all those people together and then effectively the people who have this uh, unplanned event uh, occur are able to um, uh, get the payments they need to get through the problem. The adverse selection problem though can be one where if the pool of people who are subject to being insured begins to have more and more people who are likely to have the event take place, then it becomes difficult to in fact risk pool. So there is the possibility that um, has been discussed of a so-called adverse selection uh, death spiral. And what happens there is that as more people make claims, the insurance company responds by raising the premiums people pay. And as you point out, when people are buying insurance, they're balancing the payments that they make to insure against the event against the possibility that the cost is higher than they want to pay. So as you raise premiums, what insurance companies tend to find is that more and more people who are likely to make claims buy the insurance. So if you raise fire insurance premiums in an area that's subject to fires, what you find is the people who are in fact not likely to, to have a fire, they decide oh, it's not worth it to, to buy fire insurance and they drop out and then you get a, a, a pool that is composed more and more of people who are likely to file a claim. So I think what people who were worried in 2017 about the repeal of the individual mandate were afraid of is they saw the individual mandate as forcing healthy people to buy insurance. So these would be people who most likely would not make claims unless they had you know, a traffic accident or developed unexpectedly a disease or something. They would be in the pool making their payments, but most likely not making claims. And that would make it possible then to ensure the people who might have pre-existing conditions uh, without charging people very high premiums. But if it was the case you removed the individual mandate and the healthy people dropped out, then you'd have to raise premiums on the people who remained. And that would cause more healthier people to drop out. And pretty soon you'd have what they call an adverse election death spiral where you'd have almost nobody left who um, was healthy and you'd have mostly people who were ill and then the insurance companies would not be able to offer policies. But as you point out, one of the things that kept that from happening, right? So that was the, the problem people were afraid of. It didn't actually happen. We're now about three years after the mandate was removed. So we've had several cycles of people going into the exchanges and buying insurance is, as you pointed out, the system was set up so that you're subsidizing people's income. You're subsidizing people's premium payments, rather, on the basis of their income. So if the premium payments go up, people don't drop out of the exchanges because, in fact, they don't, in fact, have to pay those higher premiums because the federal government is increasing the subsidies that they will pay. So you end up in a situation where people don't end up thinking, oh, you know, I, I'm going to have to drop out of the system because I can't afford these premiums because, in fact, the premiums are being subsidized. So it was a, an interesting and I think to some extent unexpected result that I remember at the time in 2017, some of the arguments that said, oh, boy, you know, we, if we remove the individual mandate, uh, we may cause the exchanges to collapse. That seemed plausible, but 
in hindsight, we can see, we can understand the economics of why, in fact, it didn't happen. Okay, let's, let's move on to a third question <clears throat> that was brought up in the debate. As you know, <clears throat> Glenn, there were some references to the corporate income tax. So in 2017, Congress passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which among other things, cut the tax rate that corporations pay on the profits they earn from 35% to 21%. So the rate dropped from one of the highest among high income countries to about the middle of the pack. In fact, we have in the textbook a table that compares corporate tax rates in the US to corporate tax rates in other high income countries before and after the cuts that occurred in 2017. During the debate, Vice President Biden, uh, former Vice President Biden proposed raising the rate back up to 28%. So it was 35%, 2017, it came down to 21%. Vice President Biden said that if elected, he would propose raising the rate back up to 28%. So what do we know about the economic effects of the corporate income tax? Well, I do expect this to be a big issue uh, going <clears throat> forward, whoever is elected. And obviously, former Vice President Biden has made this a centerpiece. The Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the 2017 tax bill you mentioned, did among other things, reduce uh, the rate of taxation on U.S. corporate income. Before the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the U.S. had the highest corporate tax rate in, in the industrial world. And many businesses and many economists, I think, had viewed that as an uncompetitive position for U.S. business. For our perspective in economics, I guess a couple of incidence questions uh, come to mind. Who is it who pays the corporate tax? We often talk about corporations as paying taxes, but of course a corporation is a legal entity. It, it really is shareholders, it's workers, it's customers, it's suppliers, it's the people surrounding it that could possibly pay a tax. The original analyses of corporate income taxation uh, came to the conclusion that if you were to have an economy with um, no responsiveness of savings to uh, capital taxes and an economy that's closed, it's really the owners of all capital that bear the corporate tax. And so if the corporate tax were to go up, you would expect capital owners to get a lower return. If the corporate tax goes down, they get a higher return. In the more complicated open economy we live in, where we think saving and investment do depend on, on tax variables, among other things, the story's a little more complicated. Let's suppose we raise the corporate tax. If we raise the corporate tax and discourage investment, then we would have less capital. We talk about this in the principles tax. If we have less capital though, less capital per worker, that would mean lower productivity and lower wages. Many economists believe that part of the burden of the corporate tax is in fact shifted onto labor. Uh, and all the more so, the more open the economy is. And that's a feature actually of, of Washington policy analysis as well by the Joint Committee on Taxation or the Congressional Budget Office. And so if we were to raise the corporate tax from 21 to 28%, there'd be three questions we'd have to talk about in economics. And I would venture would come up in class. What does it do to the competitiveness of US firms in global markets? What would happen to business investment is the second question. 
And of course, something that's on everybody's mind too, the stock market in your retirement accounts and your personal investments, a higher corporate tax, all else equal, would lower the present value of future profits, which should lower stock prices. So all of these are things that uh, didn't exactly come up in economic detail in the debate, but I think we're going to be hearing about them. I don't know what you think, though. Yes, well, the the incidence of the corporate income tax, as you know, is one of the uh, naughtier questions in um, in public finance tax policy. It, it's complicated because, as you mentioned, depends on your assumption. So, by tax incidence, of course, we we mean who really pays the tax because corporations, as um, non living um, entities. Uh, can't pay the tax. It's only their owners or the people who work for them and the people who buy their products can pay the tax. So how exactly the tax gets divided up, what the incidence of it is, has remained a, a point that's debated a lot. I wanted to run something by you that just popped into my head um, years ago. So I'm not um, someone who um, specialized in public finance, but years ago when I was in graduate school, so this is many years ago, I did take a course in public finance, and I remember a forceful lecture by my professor fellow by the name of George Brake, and what George Brake argued was, with the corporate income tax, what are we trying to do? He said, we can't, in fact, tax businesses in the sense that, you know, businesses are buildings and, and computers and machinery and whatever, and computers and buildings don't pay taxes, it's only people. So he said, if we want to tax corporations, what we're really saying is we want to tax the people who own them. So he, his argument was that we ought to abolish the corporate income tax and require corporations then to provide information to the IRS and to their shareholders, their owners, on what their profits were per share, and the shareholders would then be taxed on that. So for instance, say I own a share of stock in Apple, and uh, Apple makes $4 per share in profit. So if we took the, the billions of dollars that Apple earns in a year in profits, and we divide it by the billions of shares of Apple that are trading on the stock market, we come up with $4 a share. So currently, maybe Apple actually sends me one of those dollars, right? So they, they pay me a dividend by putting into my uh, checking account a uh, dollar per share each year and keeps the other three, right? What we call retained earnings and uh, uses that to finance uh, you know, research on a new iPhone or or any of the other things that um, they may want to do to, to grow their company. So uh, Brake's proposal, and I, I, I think that there are other economists who've talked about this as well, was that in effect, rather than my being taxed on just the $1 that Apple actually sent me, I would be taxed on the, on the $4. So even though I didn't see three of those dollars, I would be responsible for paying taxes on them. And in effect, we would have integrated the corporate income tax and the individual income tax, and we'd have wiped out the corporate income tax. So questions of you know, who's actually paying it would become, in effect, 
changed so that the corporation itself would not be responsible for the tax, but the individuals who own it would. What do you think about that proposal? Is that one that um, public finance economists take seriously these days? Is it one that is reform that might be worth contemplating or is it just something that seems quite infeasible? Well, it's a very interesting idea and it's been around a long time and talked about in tax reform circles for decades. In the present environment, it's easy to see why there's a lot of attention to it. If we're worried about competitiveness among corporate tax rate regimes across countries, why not go after the owners of capital themselves? So the recipients of capital gains and dividends, whereas in the past we had cut taxes at that level and not the corporate level. So there's certainly a lot to be said for it. There are issues though. Let's take a US corporation. So there's two kinds of shareholders that would be very hard to raise money from, and they happen to dominate a lot of shareholding. One would be tax-exempt shareholders. So a tax-exempt shareholder could be Lehigh or Columbia. It could also be, of course, pension schemes and so on. Tax-exempt shareholders wouldn't be paying the tax at all, nor would many foreign shareholders. Uh, one idea some economists have had is a wrinkle in what you've said would be to keep the corporate tax in place, but to give a credit to individual investors that is non-refundable. So for example, if I'm a taxable investor, which I am, sadly, but I am, uh, <laughs> I, could I could take the credit. But if I were Columbia University, I couldn't. So that is a way of trying to do it. So I, I expect we're going to hear a lot of these. Once we start to raise the corporate tax rate, if that's what we do in, in 2021, I think a lot of these other debates will come back. And it's a great chance in class to talk about who bears the tax, what are its consequences, and what are we really trying to accomplish, as your question asked. I remember that one of the issues that Professor Brake, those many years ago, raised is he thought that there was a significant distortion, that the corporate income tax significantly distorted the allocation of capital, meaning you know, which firms had access to the funds they needed to expand. And the argument was that because uh, retained earnings, the profits that corporations do not distribute to their shareholders, don't cause the the shareholders to have an immediate tax liability, there is an incentive for firms to retain those earnings. So if you're Apple, uh, if you retain, if I am an Apple shareholder, maybe I would prefer Apple to keep as much of their earnings and pay me as little because I don't have to pay any tax on what they retain. And if in fact they're successful in their investments and Apple becomes um, an even larger company than it currently is, uh, then I'll down the road get the benefit because the prices of the, of the stock uh, that I bought in Apple will go up, uh, but I won't actually have to pay any tax on that until uh, I sell the shares if I ever do. And he thought that that was a distortion because if Apple had to uh, distribute those uh, profits or if we changed the law so that I had to pay taxes on, the, on their profits, whether they distributed them or not, that uh, shareholders would put more pressure on companies to distribute the funds so that if I'm paying a tax, I wanna actually have the, 
the money that I'm being taxed on. And that that would then have the shareholders make more decisions on where capital would go. So for instance, rather than um, Apple retaining the, um, the profits that they're earning in my name because I'm a shareholder, if they distributed that money to me, maybe I'd rather put that money in a startup firm rather than having Apple retain it. And that as a result, we get a significant shift in which firms got funding. And he thought that younger, more dynamic firms might end up finding that they, uh, that they would get more funding if we ended up eliminating the corporate income tax and integrating it into the individual income tax. Now, of course, that's um, a hypothetical or economists sometimes say counterfactual argument and it makes a certain amount of sense. But one of the things that we talk about a lot in the book is that um, sometimes we know the direction that things would go. We don't always know the magnitudes so that yes, probably you would get um, a change in, in which in the mix of corporations and the mix of companies they get funding, but we don't know exactly how big that would be and whether that would be large enough to make it a significant factor when we debate the politics of, you know, should we go ahead with that kind of change in the corporate income tax? So I don't know whether that particular um, argument is one that tax economists think about these days. It is, and I think there's two aspects to what you say. And I start out with the basic point that we want our economy to be as dynamic as possible. So we want capital to flow where it's going to have its highest and most productive use. And that could be some firms that are existing but are growing rapidly. It could be new firms and new technologies. We don't want money just piling up in firms that aren't using it well. Uh, one, for capital allocation reasons, and two, for what we talk about in the book as agency costs. If there's too much uh, money sloshing around in a mature firm, that money could get wasted on projects that aren't particularly valuable for shareholders. There are a couple of things from a policy perspective this brings up. We were talking about the corporate tax, but of course, another tax that's in the debate is the capital gains tax. Former Vice President Biden is proposing essentially doubling the capital gains tax. The capital gains tax as it exists in most countries is partly a capital income tax and partly a transactions tax because I only pay it when I actually realize a gain. And so to your point, if you have a very high rate of capital gains, it may just simply discourage me from realizing those gains, that is of trapping that money inside companies, which is one reason economists have generally um, not been favorable, at least on efficiency grounds, of high levels of capital gains taxes. Another issue we talk about in the book in this regard, those existence of large shareholders. So one way of disciplining corporate waste, that is of getting money paid out so it can be recycled better, would be to have large shareholders or corporate raiders who look for undervalued companies. We talk about this in the textbook in the context of private equity firms, for example. That is another way of keeping the economy going. So all of this raises a lot of really interesting tax and non-tax questions, and I'm sure we'll be talking about them in the first half of next year when we get a tax bill. Glenn, I think that we've only touched on some of the issues that um, were raised in the debate that are going to continue to be discussed during the remainder of the uh, political campaign and also in the new year. 
uh, when either uh, President Trump begins his second term or uh, former Vice President Biden uh, begins his first term. And I'm sure that there will be significant uh, new policy initiatives that we will be around to discuss. A reminder that this podcast is available on iTunes. If you would like, you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. Please keep checking our blog at HubbardO'BrienEconomics.com, where we periodically post new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. And again, a reminder that if you have an issue or concern that you'd like us to discuss in the podcast, please send us an email at HubbardO'BrienEconomics at gmail.com. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien economics podcast. We'll see you next time.